Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, March 24th, we're studying Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 42. Jesus and his disciples go to Gethsemane, where Jesus prays concerning the cup that he is about to drink. Yet even in the midst of his distress and trouble, he asks that his Father's will be done. Help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today. We have with us regular guest, Pastor Tim Cook. Pastor Cook serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. Pastor Cook, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Glad to be here. Thank you. As we get started this morning, let's talk context. We're in Mark 14. Where are we in the Gospel of Mark? What's been happening that we need to know going into this text? Jesus has just celebrated the Passover with his disciples and then transformed it. I don't know if I like that verbiage, but has upgraded it, I don't like that either, to um, the Lord's Supper. Um, So the Passover gives way to uh, the sacrament of the altar. And uh, in the midst of that situation, we have Jesus informing his disciples that he will be betrayed. And and so they are now done with uh, the meal. And they are leaving the room, and they are heading out uh, to the uh, to Gethsemane. So that's uh, that's the immediate context here. We're in uh, Holy Thursday yet, and yeah, that's probably enough. How about fulfilled? Could we say he fulfilled the Passover? I know sure. that's not our text for today, but maybe that's that's better verbiage. That's a hard one. I yeah, know. I'm, it, it's it's uh, it's definitely it's tough. I talked with my kids about this uh, yesterday in catechism class, and um, the, the analogy. And of course, every analogy or metaphor breaks down. I said you, you trade in a Dodge Caravan for a you know town and country uh, newer model. Um, the the Passover is now yeah fulfilled. It's done. That's not what we do anymore. We don't celebrate that. We celebrate the Lord's Supper because this is what he did. It's the New Covenant, New Testament. So, yeah, fulfilled. I don't think I'll find a verb on the phone that I'm happy with. (laughs) (laughs) It'll take me more time to come up with something I'm more satisfied with. But the idea, of course, being, well, why don't we celebrate the Passover? Uh, Because we have the Lord's Supper now, and that's the immediate context that precedes the betrayal and the move to Gethsemane. So we're on Holy Thursday, Monday, Thursday, Jesus and his disciples are leaving the room that they celebrated the sacrament in for the first time. And now the text continues again. We are in Mark 14, beginning at verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, 
truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. That is the text for today. Mark 14, verses 26 through 42. Pastor Cook, as the text begins, Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. That note in verse 26 about them singing a hymn. I think it often gets read on the Monday, Thursday text that we hear. Any insight into what they might have been singing as they leave the the upper room and go to the Mount of Olives? There's some. uh, Scholars are split on this. Um, A traditional uh, experience following the Passover would have been to sing what are called the Halal Psalms, Psalm 115 through 118. Um, and uh, so that, that's a possibility. I guess it's my understanding that was traditionally sung after the Passover. Mm. Um, a rather prominent uh, scholar on the Passion narratives was a Roman Catholic by the name of Raymond Brown. And he says, uh, it is worthless to speculate <laughs> on what hymn they sung. So he punts. Uh, he won't even speculate on it, and he discourages others from doing the same. And then um, another commentary for those in the know, uh, fellow Missouri Synod, Markham scholar, uh, Velps, Dr. Velps, uh, he says, probably not the halal psalms because of what Jesus has just done in transforming, upgrading, fulfilling the, the Lord's Supper, uh, the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper. And so he makes the case, while he doesn't specify a specific uh, tune or text, uh, he says a song of thanksgiving to God for uh, salvation. Okay. So that covers, uh, that covers the whole gambit uh, there. Um, I am... Uh, <clears throat> I'm inclined to retreat to the the either don't speculate or speculate without saying anything, which is what I think <laughs> Dr. Veltz did. Um, you know, he doesn't give us any new thing to consider, except ah, I don't think it was this over here, mm-hmm. and that's fine. So 
you can make a essentially make a decision and then you got to make a case for it and be aware that people may or may not find it uh compelling mm. um i'm i'm personally persuaded um i'm by Velps and then in conjunction with Raymond Brown's uh, argument that uh, probably not the probably not the Psalms, but I'm not going to sit here and suggest to you that I've spent a lot of time <laughs> weighing the pros and cons or studying it. Fair enough. The point, they song, they song. Sure. Right? Uh, Lord, a new song. I mean that, and so this will be the thing that you you know where you don't want to lose the forest for the trees. Uh, the people have uh, re- remembered at minimum the salvation of God through the Passover. They have been told anew and afresh God's new work uh, through his body and blood in the Lord's Supper. And now what do we do uh, following the salvation? We sing. So the first song in the entire Bible is the Song of Moses following the escape from Egypt. Hmm. So. Uh, singing, that's a, that's a good thing to do. And, you know, there's no command to be good at it, uh, though we always like to be excellent for our Savior. But uh, there is a command that we do it. So, Sure, and, and you're right. I mean, the text does not give an indication as to what precisely they might have sung. And there there are any number of songs, scripturally speaking, that would have fit the context for one reason or another. But I think to to say the fact that they did sing, that certainly says something. And even thinking about Jesus, what he says in this text, and then particularly as he prays later, and the emotions that Mark even tells us about for Jesus, for him to sing at this moment, I think is a, a pretty striking thing, uh, almost to the, the effect, you know, in the midst of of what is about to be his passion, he still sings. You know, he, he takes to heart that command from the the Psalms and elsewhere, sing to the Lord a new song. That's a that's a uh, that's an important detail, even if we don't know exactly what he's saying. Now, with that, Pastor Cook, Jesus then speaks to his disciples. He tells them they're all going to fall away. He's previously identified that one of them is going to betray him. Now he says something about they'll all fall away, and he, he quotes from the Old Testament. Uh, take us into to what Jesus says here to his disciples that's going to happen. It's, uh, it's a, we would say, you know, wet blanket or a buzzkill. It's a, it's a shock. It's a shocking statement. Um, unless the tune that they were singing was a lament, mm. Um, or an otherwise uh, dreary cry of anguish, or a dirge, and the text doesn't appear to be pointing in that direction. Uh, So this is a shift in tone now, Um, a little bit like whiplash. You're all going to fall away. And uh, and he tells them why. He, He cites the book of Zechariah which beginning in chapter 9 of the book of Zechariah, we get this messianic uh, prophecy about the king coming to you, humble and lowly, riding on uh, the donkey. And so we are in the midst of that. Christ himself, has is, he's fulfilling that text um, very much so, as he rode the donkey in uh, to Jerusalem in Mark chapter 11. Uh, so we're still in that same week. And uh, he's like, yeah, the the falling away, and and the the falling away is, uh, 
a direct result of the striking of the shepherd. Um, so this is not a case of uh, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to the own, his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, um, which, of course, is true and from Isaiah. But this is more of a the reason of the falling away is the, the shepherd's going down. And that's um, that's more that's more the point. So the the shift and the shock and the wet blanket and the buzzkill, uh, the whiplash. This this is not about the failure of the disciples as it is about the death of the Messiah. That that would be your that would be your emphasis there. Now even with that with that with that shock the whiplash that you're talking about Jesus does provide a a note of hope at the end much like in his passion predictions previously in Mark's gospel Jesus here talks about after he is raised up he will go before them to Galilee so you've got that that note of hope that he ends with and one thing to to point out there is that the way Jesus speaks may sound a bit unusual to us. Jesus says, after I am raised up. Often when we speak in the creeds, we say that we believe in Jesus Christ. He rose again from the dead on the third day, that that he did it. And, and Jesus has even spoken that way earlier in Mark's gospel, that he will rise. Here he says, he will be raised up. Why do the scriptures also speak that way? Why is that important for us as Christians to hold on to that language? It's always important to hold on to the language and grammar of scripture. Um, chief among them, though, would be that... Uh, it's not Trinity Sunday yet, but we, we maintain the economy of the the Trinity. So how how is it that God is working through, uh, in the midst of the world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And uh, Jesus Christ, when we hear it, uh, it, it can be, um, it, it, the, the Greek is not as specific as we're making it out to be in English. Um, but by and large, we recognize, uh, you know, God the Father who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that's Pauline, uh, very common Pauline language. And um, uh, yeah, I think w- part of that is it puts an emphasis on the, the trust that Jesus Christ has. Uh, another word for trust would be faith uh, in his Father. He's got this faith uh, in, in his Father to do right by him, as we're going to see uh, in his anguished prayer uh, coming up. Uh, and so uh, the the raising up is um, as it's passively constructed in English here, whether that was the intention of the you know Greek writing or not, uh, it does have a blessed coincidence of pointing us to uh, the the agency of of the Father making good on His promises and the emphasis of Christ's faith um, and trust in His Father, and then of course the vindication and all of that in the resurrection of the dead. So Jesus says, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He's laid out 
before his disciples, this buzzkill, as you said, this bit of whiplash, yet there is this note of, of hope that the resurrection is coming. The Father will be faithful to his promise, and Jesus places his trust in that promise, and the disciples will be included in this. Jesus says, I will go before you to Galilee. There's a, a promise of reuniting there. They're going to fall away, but they will be reunited in Galilee. How does how does Peter, how do the disciples, how do they react? How would you characterize the way they respond to this whiplash moment from Jesus? Yeah, it is unabashedly selfish. Um, it, it is stunningly selfish. And sometimes what happens when you become particularly familiar with a text is it the strangeness doesn't feel strange anymore. So... Um, an advice that uh, is often given to international travelers, um, especially if they're going to go travel internationally and then stay there for a long time, say they're going to go study abroad uh, in China or something, um, is take pictures of the things that strike you as odd the first week that you're there. Because after a couple of weeks, you'll just be assimilated to that, and it won't strike you as odd anymore. Mm. And um, I, I worry about that with this text. Jesus has just said some incredibly profound things. Uh, hey, we have this um, fulfillment of Zechariah that is going to occur. You're all going to fall away. He's just made a reference to the idea of being raised, um, and I think the, the context is obvious from the dead. Okay, so there, there should be a lot of questions here. Like, you might think a natural reply would be, so should we just go to Galilee right now? <laughs> you know, uh, that would seem to be a, a natural reply. Or how about you are all falling away? Um, maybe we could say, is there anything that we can do so we don't fall away? Um, or the shepherd will be struck and they recognize, seemingly, no, they they recognize the text is clear that this is a that Jesus is the shepherd, and there's no concern for him. There's not, hey, can we prevent this? Can we can we stop this from happening? No, how are you feeling? <laughs> how can we be with you? It's it's just this um, traumatic event that fulfills prophecy and speaks to the resurrection of the dead. And Peter says. Uh, yeah, but look at me. Look at me. Mm-hmm. Everyone look at me. Uh, and it's it reminds me of him being on the Mount of Transfiguration, where you have Moses, Elijah, Jesus are talking, and he interrupts them. Uh, and, you know, one of the gospel writers says, hey, he didn't even know what to, what to say. Um, and he's just always making it about himself. And as we'll see here later on in the text, uh, they're all going to follow that lead, and they're going to double down on uh, hey, look at us, look at us, look at us. And that's, I mean, you could not possibly miss the point more than that. Hmm. Um, so, which should, uh, you know, this is not a license or a prescription for us to be as calloused or dense or ridiculous in our actions, um, but even this stupidity uh, is redeemed and incapable of disrupting the plan uh, of salvation that God has enacted through his son, Jesus Christ. Right. From this, from this moment, 
you do start to see Jesus. I mean, we're going to see it here in a little bit when we talk about his prayer in Gethsemane. You see how Jesus begins to really stand alone, stand apart from his disciples, that as what he says begins to be fulfilled, they become faithless in one way or another. He continues to remain steadfast. He continues to be faithful precisely for their sakes. For these sheep who scatter from him, he continues to remain the good shepherd for them, the one who lays down his life and takes it back up again for these very sheep who scatter. So they've Peter starts it, right? And that that makes perfect sense. We've we've seen him do this throughout the gospel where he he's the one to speak up and and he he puts himself on display. You know, all of them, those other 11, they're going to fall away, but I won't. And Jesus, before anyone else chimes in, he has specific words directed to Peter. He's, he now identifies Peter particularly, which, you know, he didn't in, in earlier in Mark 14. All Jesus said about the betrayer was that it was one of them who's dipping bread into the dish. He didn't actually identify the betrayer at that moment in Mark 14, 21. Here he very clearly identifies Peter as one who will fail him rather spectacularly as he denies Jesus three times. He says it's going to happen before the rooster crows twice. Take us into those words of Jesus to Peter. Yeah, uh, I, I, well, he says, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So uh, you get this impression where Jesus says, okay, Peter, you want to talk about you? Let's talk about you. And it's not good. It's, it's terrible. And, um, and that, that to me is uh, just classic, uh, classic conversation. Um, and that's the value of a, of a good, uh, you know, a faithful Christian in providing a consolation to fellow Christians, whether it be a pastor to a parishioner or a mother to a child, um, when when they're despairing uh, or when they're arrogant, you can say, oh, oh, you want to talk about you for a minute, huh? Okay, let's do that. And you kind of pull back the curtain here, and he doesn't just say, Peter, you know, you're going to fall away. He, uh, he says, you're going to fall away three times before the night's even over. Hmm. Uh, and so he, he very much kind of, uh, not kind of, he, he almost shames uh, Peter puts him in his place very much in the same way that he said, get behind me, Satan. Hmm. Um, it's just, this is not, this is not good. And, and we have better, more fruitful and far more comforting conversations when we're talking about Christ rather than ourselves, such as uh, I will be raised and go before you into Galilee. Hmm. Is there, is there any significance to the rooster crowing twice before the rooster crows twice you will deny me three times as opposed to crying once i didn't look into it so i don't know i have not heard um even anecdotally i'm just kind of kicking around the memory bank uh i I don't ever remember hearing a significance placed into that so if you're aware of something i'm i'm all ears but i didn't focus in on that or stumble on anything that addressed it the the only the only thing that i i saw very briefly was perhaps the the compare and contrast between peter's going to deny jesus three times which is one more than even the rooster will crow almost like oh is it i think it's in isaiah 
where where the prophet says that that even even donkeys know how to to follow the bit and the bridle, but you, O Israel, you don't know who your God is. Something to that effect, and almost a matter of of shaming. I don't know. I was just curious because it it's it seems like an an odd detail. I think the way you took it is probably the simplest. It's just before this night is over, this is going to happen. Yeah, if uh, your comment there reminds me of that. Uh, famous refrain at the beginning of Amos for three transgressions and for four, where you find that in the Proverbs, right? Five things, uh, are, six things are too wide for me, seven, da 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 and so here we have kind of that uh, same deal, but it's reversed. Three times you're going to do this, and then to the lesser extent, ah, or two, but uh, that is really just shooting, shooting from the hip, so... Don't don't build the doctrine on that. It's just a re- reflection on Scripture does often do this one-off uh, compare and contrast, especially in the Old Testament. This scene then concludes with Peter coming back at Jesus and no, no, I'm mean, going to say it emphatically. Even if I have to die with you, I won't deny you. And and all of them join in with this chorus. I I think among other things, what Peter says there, if I must die with you says that, as you were pointing out earlier, they did understand what Jesus was saying about the shepherd being struck, about what's going to happen. And Peter himself now suggests, I can do that too. I, I will I will stick with you. I'll even die with you, but I won't deny you. And they all join into it. Clint, help us conclude this, this scene before we move into the garden. Yeah. The first, um, the shepherd language, I just want to mention this. The word shepherd is used only twice in the entire Gospel of Mark. Um, because shepherd is such a prominent image in uh, both Old and New Testaments, it, it's kind of shocking that it only shows up here twi- the, twice. This is a reference, uh, of course, to, it's just a citation of the Old Testament. The other time it shows up is in chapter 6, uh, where feeding of the 5,000. He has compassion on them like sheep without a shepherd. Um, so, they, but yeah, they recognize that the shepherd is is the one, and depending on how familiar they are with that text of Zechariah, they're going to recognize that not only is this shepherd, you know, this is the passage where it says they will look on the one whom he has pierced, and God the Father himself um, is the acting agent in Zechariah. So the striking down of the shepherd is something that God himself is going to do. And so, uh, yeah, Peter's just, if he is aware of those things, his emphatic, I'm going to die with you verb is is pretty stark. Like, I almost in a messianic role, right? He's Mm -hmm. almost, yeah, he's elevating himself to a a messianic position. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'll be, I'll be right there with you. God himself can strike me down. And we don't get there today, but uh, that's not going to pan out that way for him. Um, So, and then just uh, that last line uh, is important. They they all said the same. So Peter's the one on display here, but he is representative of the whole, which is, I would imagine, a thing you've uh, noted elsewhere. Uh, He very much becomes a spokesman for the entire group of disciples, and here it's explicit. Uh, this is not a unique sentiment to um, Peter at all. They're, they're all doubling down on their faithfulness, which is remarkable um, because the, it's uh, you know they're putting their faith in their faith, 
Uh, they're putting their confidence and their faith instead of in the faithfulness of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, um, which is always an interesting conversation, but it's not going to go well for them. No, no, it's not. And we'll see how that begins to happen in this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, talking to Pastor Tim Cook about Mark chapter 14. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, March 24th. We're studying Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 42. We have Pastor Tim Cook with us. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. Pastor Cook, prior to the break, we were looking at the first scene in this text where Jesus tells his disciples, using the text from the prophet Zechariah, that they will all fall away as he, the shepherd, is struck. They will be scattered. They all respond rather selfishly, keeping their focus on themselves, not upon their Lord. They claim that they can follow Jesus, that they won't deny Jesus. Jesus says, no, Peter, you particularly, you will deny me three times. They double down on it. We'll see as this text progresses and as the rest of the gospel progresses, that what Jesus says proves true. Jesus takes them to a place called Gethsemane in order for him to have time to pray. We've seen Jesus pray in the gospel of Mark previously. This time, though, we get a little more insight into his emotion and into what he actually prays. He even takes Peter, James, and John with him in this private moment. He does go beyond them. Uh, Take us into this scene. Jesus is praying. He takes the three with him. Help us into this scene. Introduce it for us. Sure. The first thing I would point out is um, it's the Gospel of John that tells us it's a a garden. Uh, I think it might show up. It's definitely in John, if not another Gospel. Here it's just called a place. That's fine. We get the name Gethsemane which in Aramaic means oil press. And I remind you that they are uh, here on the Mount of Olives. So there would be plenty of oil uh, to do their, um, to do the pressing. Uh, the name is apropos, uh, Gethsemane. And uh, so he says to his disciples, uh, sit here. He's very clear with them that he's going to go pray. He doesn't give them any command other than to sit um, the specific commands of watching and praying are given to Peter, James, and John. That's verse 33. So he takes Peter, James, and John with him. Uh, I usually just call that the, the inner circle. Um, and it says he began, uh, this is the ESV text, he began to be greatly distressed and uh, troubled. Oh. So um, distress and affliction is not... 
sinful. Hmm. <laughs> uh, kind of my pastoral care uh, sensors are going off here, um, which is um, when when Jesus is distressed and troubled, uh, he is not, uh, you know, well, you just have to have a little more faith. You know, it, hmm. it, that's that's not what's going on. Uh, it's not it's not uh, outlined as being a uh, kind of a failure of uh, like some more. It's not distress. And here we go. Distress and trouble is not a moral failure. And I think that's something I just want to point out on that text. Um, hmm. So he's there, and now now we get the the specific stuff. Verse thirty four. Jesus is extremely explicit with them. Um, after telling them that the, the shepherd is going to be struck down, uh, he continues to say, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And I want to uh, point out that uh, the Greek word here um, has not necessarily the easy body-soul cut that we make in um, English. So we tend to think of uh, body and soul as like two halves of the person. Uh, but the word soul here um, is uh, more all-encompassing. So it's not like my body's fine, but my, it's, no, it's, it's holistic. It's this whole, it's this whole everything. So the same verb uh, or same word shows up in Mark 10 verse 45 and uh where he says even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many well the word translated life there is the same word that's translated as soul in this context so we have a reason for doing that in english but at the end of the day i don't want to draw a super sharp line between body and soul um, for a host of theological reasons, chief among them is that our salvation is, as Paul says in Romans 8, a redemption of our bodies. We have in our creedal statements that we are looking uh, for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So it's not, you know, God cares about our soul and doesn't care about our life or something like that. It, it, it's a holistic salvation. It's a holistic salvation. And in Jesus's uh, case, as he stands in our place, to receive uh, the wrath of God, it's a holistic punishment, uh, and he's greatly troubled. So um, he he points that out. It's very sorrowful. Just all of him is sorrowful, um, even to death. He says, "I could die," and then he tells them specifically, "Stay here and watch." Um, the "stay here and watch" language um, is going to parallel the. Um, eschatological discourse in chapter 13, where we have the don't sleep, watch, stay awake, that kind of verbiage is going to parallel now in, in chapter 14. So just to be aware that that's, that that's happening. And then he goes further on, falls on the ground, and he prays specifically that if it were possible, uh, the hour might pass from him. And now we get the, the verbiage, the specific words. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet yeah, not what I will, but what you will. So that's uh, there. I pushed you pretty far into the garden here. Yeah. Gethsemane. Yeah. So, I mean, with the word that you're bringing out there in verse 34, my soul is very sorrowful. Maybe something like my being, my whole 
life just doesn't really work there in English. I mean, the way that we would speak, but something like my, my being, my, my, myself, uh, is, is very sorrowful. His, everything about Jesus is filled with this sorrow. He, he, for our Hebrew speaking listeners, the Hebrew has a great word here. Nefesh. There you go. That's, that's the context. We don't, it doesn't move into English. It just doesn't. So you're right. Uh, the the all of me the being the it's it's tough it's tough in english to really capture that yeah the full weight of what's going on there and we're poorer for it uh we really are in this particular instance we're poorer for that inability to move it over uh into english uh very well because we care so much about uh salvation and what happens uh after we die and as we await the resurrection it it just creates a few additional problems. We have just more baggage uh, to carry with us sure. as we try to wade through. Sure. In terms of then verses 35 and 34, where Mark tells us Jesus' posture, I mean, you can see falling on the ground, I think goes right hand in hand with the greatly distressed, the troubled, the sorrowful of, of his whole being. And then he, he asks, if it's possible— let this hour pass from him. That's Mark tells us that. And then we get the specific words, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. There's so many things we could talk about here, Pastor Cook. The, the If it's possible, all things are possible for you. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of what Jesus tells his disciples Oh, it's in Mark 11, where he, he says, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain and believes and believes that he has what he says, that will come to pass. I mean, he's said previously, all things are possible for God back in Mark chapter 10, when he was talking about the rich young man and salvation, that salvation is possible for God. And, and here he lays this request before his own father. And, and it, the answer ends up being, well, no, this cup won't be removed. This hour will come to you, Jesus. That is the Father's will. Oh, there's there's so much there, Pastor Cook. I'll I'll let you take the lead. I, I've thrown a few thoughts out. Yeah, they, I agree. There's um, huh. Well, let's start with uh, let's start with the, uh, you know, Abba Father. We kind of have that uh, the tone of endearment, the privileged uh, status. Um, it's not, I, 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 I believe it's, uh, well, one of the commentaries I consulted, uh, spent a, a fair amount of time saying, you know, Abba isn't necessarily this just intimate, you know, daddy language, but, but is more, uh, robust than that and referring to the privileged status of a son. Um, so we have, we have that anyway, regardless, it is a, it is a close connection. He calls him father. And then he says, all things are possible for you. It sounds like a, a creedal statement, right? So we say, I believe in God, the father, and now we're going to say something about him. Right. And the first thing we say is almighty. I, I mean, this is how we speak too. I believe in God, the father almighty. So we acknowledge up front, um, what God is uh, capable of. And insofar as we submit to God uh, and trust in him, then the challenge is um, 
to actually do that. Uh, that's not an easy thing to do because of what we know. Uh, we know what God is able to do. So this past week, uh, I preached on the bronze serpent text from Numbers 21. Um, by the time this airs, that will be a few weeks uh, ago, but um, I think, maybe. Anyway, the point being, when the serpents come in, they approach God and say to Moses, pray to the Lord that he take the serpents away from among us. Mm-hmm. So they come with the solution in hand, right? Uh, well, he doesn't take the serpents away, but that doesn't mean he hasn't heard their prayer, and he still provides for them a salvation. Salvation just looks according to his design, not according to their design. And this is what Jesus models so well. Uh, beautiful prayer. He acknowledges what God is capable of doing, uh, and then he also uh, acknowledges that it's your will that's more important than my own. Uh, so we see this great trust and faith modeled for us once again. And then tucked in between those two statements is the specific request that we remove the cup, and that that's a thing we need to spend some time on. Hmm. Because if you are, again, um, unfamiliar with the text, um, you might say, well, what's the, what's the cup? And maybe we're so familiar with, uh, with that text, it doesn't strike us as odd. But if you gave this passage to a person who has not spent time in the church uh, in any way and asked them, what's Jesus talking about here? They would have no clue. They would truly have no idea remove this cup. What cu- They might think of an actual drinking vessel, um, but it's, it's a placeholder, a symbol for the wrath of God, the cup of the wrath of God. And there's a rather long discourse about this in the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 25, which has some striking similarities to the striking of the shepherd in Zechariah uh, 11, 12, and 13, which is the, the both uh, texts have a reference to the shepherds being struck down. Both texts have a reference to the shepherds being struck down by God. Um, we have the scattering of the sheep. We have the calling of the nations. It, there's a lot going on there. But at the end of the day, when Jesus says, uh, take this cup, it's a reference to suffering, and this is not the first time Mark has done this. It shows up in chapter 10. James and John are arguing about wanting to be the, at the seats of honor. And uh, when Christ comes into his kingdom, and he says, are you able to drink the cup? Uh, and they arrogantly, just as they did in this text, say, ah, oh, if I must die with you, I will never fall away. They arrogantly suggest, yes, we can endure this this wrath of God. So um, there's... Uh, the congregation I serve has a, has a stained glass window of this prayer in Gethsemane, uh, and it's remarkable. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing because uh, it shows Jesus on his uh, knees. So a little liberty there. He's not prostrate on the ground, but he, he's looking up and, when, you know, in artwork, follow the eyes, right? Follow the eyes. What, what is Jesus looking at? And, and if you follow Jesus' eyes in the upper corner of the window is an angel holding a cup. Hmm. Uh, and then the text on the window says, uh, not my will, but thou, thine, thine be done. So um, everyone should come to uh, Millbank and look at our window and then join our church. So, 
Can that, I do that self-promotion? That's fine. Yes. Okay, good. That's great. Yes. Go go to Emmanuel <laughs> Lutheran Church in Milbank, South Dakota to see a picture of Mark chapter 14, the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane. This is, I mean, I, I've seen this depicted in artwork elsewhere of, of Jesus' prayer here. Is this... Should this surprise us to hear a prayer like this from Jesus? He he's been he's been teaching his disciples all along on multiple occasions that this must happen, that this this suffering, death, and resurrection has to happen, and and here he asks, if there's a way, please take it away. Is that is that surprising at all? What do we what do we do with that? I think it's surprising insofar as. Uh, Christians, especially Christians from the cradle, have just recognized, oh, Jesus is the Son, right? For God so loved the world, he sent his Son, uh, uh, or, you know, gave his Son, that concept. And so it does catch us a little bit off guard, like, oh, this is what Jesus is up to. Um, but they can both be true. Uh, when you, Any person who's had a fair amount of life experience can tell of a time when they knew the thing that had to be done and they were not at all looking forward to doing it. Um, And if they could have in any way gotten out of doing it and still accomplished the thing that needed to be done, they, they would have done that. So, um, so I, I think most people do find it surprising. They expect better of Jesus. Um, That might come with a a faulty understanding of what it is uh, to lament or to cast your burdens on the Lord, as Psalm 55 encourages us to do. Uh, This idea that if we do that, it's because we are weak of faith, which is absurd. It's actually the opposite. Casting your burdens upon the Lord is a demonstration of your trust in Him, Mm. not the other way around. Um, But kind of that that pious, uh, grin and bear it... um, I hate to even call it pious because it's not a piety rooted in the word of God, but uh, you know, just this, this grin and bear it kind of deal. It's odd to find this. We don't expect it to come from Jesus. We really don't. But the fact that he does it is a great blessing to us Yeah. Um, because we don't need to feel guilty when we do this also. Mm-hmm. Also, I, uh, as a pastor, love this because it helps orient a conversation about prayer and what constitutes uh, a quote-unquote, how do you know if prayer has been successful? Mm. Uh, that's a question I will ask my Bible study. How do you know if your prayers are successful? So what, you know, and then, uh, well, if, if they answer prayers are successful when God answers them, then I point to this text and say, what about Jesus? Yeah. He, uh, he prayed, and his prayer wasn't answered. Is that because he was unacquainted with how prayer was to occur, or or what he was supposed to do? Is you know, and and I think that helps again in stripping away a conversation of prayer from kind of uh, someone's faith. So if we if we make prayers value somehow dependent on a person's the amount of faith that they have, it's it just this passage get, strips away all that uh, nonsense and noise that would distract us from uh, God's command and desire to hear from his children. Hmm. So I, I, we got seven minutes here, Pastor Cook, but I want you to answer your question. How, how do you know if your prayer is successful? If it's been heard. Hmm. Does God hear your prayer? 
that's the successful prayer, the one that God hears. That's how I answer that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he does. I mean, that's his promise. And yep. that's the fantastic yep. thing about prayer is that he does. He, he does what he promises. He hears it. Okay, excellent. So with that seven minutes, then the text then moves us back to the disciples, particularly Peter. And of course, we know James and John are there. It is, it's something, I think, that you know Peter, James, and John, the, the inner three are the ones who are with Jesus. And that is not surprising, I suppose. But these three, you, you brought up that text from Mark 10. And then what we just heard from Peter, these three, particularly very recently in Jesus' ministry, have tried to single themselves out as those who, who can do it, who can stick with Jesus. They can drink the cup. They can be baptized with his baptism. They're not going to deny him. And yet it's these three who are sleeping. <laughs> they, they couldn't do the one thing that Jesus told them to do. Again, we have about six minutes here, Pastor Cook. Take us into this, these interactions here at the end between Jesus and his three disciples. Yeah, so he finds them uh, sleeping, which, again, there's this parallel to chapter 13, where Jesus says, you know, don't do that. Um, not referring to ever sleep. Christ himself slept uh, in this gospel, even. Um, but uh, the point being the, the stay, staying awake. Additionally, we have the reference to the hour. Um, he has, uh, does he call that? So 55, possible that the hour, okay. So he doesn't say that uh, specific, the hour verbiage to his disciples, but um, uh, there's there's something important going on here. And he has told them, and so a faithfulness and a commitment. I mean, if you're willing to die with Jesus, you should at least be willing to stay up for an hour to watch. I mean, at that point, he hasn't even commanded them to do anything except uh, remain, stay in this one spot and watch, um, which is what, uh, what, and they don't do that. So um, he uh, then criticizes Peter again, because Peter, he doesn't wait for Peter to make this about himself. Now he calls Peter out uh, for his failures, um, suggesting that Peter must rely on someone other than himself. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We all need to rely on someone other than ourselves. Now in verse 36, he commands or repeats the command to watch and adds the additional command of prayer. Uh, and then the prayer specifically is not that the cup be taken from them, but they not enter into temptation. <clears throat> and... Um, then he says, the spirit indeed is willing and the flesh is weak. I think that's uh, popularized language in much of American culture. I don't know if people recognize where, even if people are aware that's verbiage or language from the Bible, they may not be aware that this is language from this place in Scripture, the Gethsemane uh, incident. Um and it always reminds me of the Romans 7, the good that I would do, I don't do, that what I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Uh, and Paul, uh, which is probably what Peter should have done, right, finally concludes, ah, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Um, well, that, that's what happens when you look at yourself. You despair um, of life and salvation. But when you look to Christ and trust in him, that is uh, better. Uh by far, and indeed the only way. In 39, then, uh, he goes, uh, he prays, uh, says the same word, so he repeats the same prayer, uh, and he comes back in 40. They're sleeping again. 
talks about how heavy their eyes were. Anyone who's ever tried to fight off sleep uh, knows that. Um, that can be a difficult thing. 41 indicates that he had then once again went. I mean, they're left speechless, which is a remarkable thing for Peter to be left speechless in 40. But Jesus goes praise, and then he comes back the third time uh, and uh, says, uh, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Uh, he says, it's enough. Now the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And then 42, rise, let us be going, see my betrayers at hand. And that betrayer at hand, um, this is the beginning of the gospel. John the Baptist and Jesus are both praying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Mm. It's the same, the same con- it's, it's both uh, here uh, and yet not fully here. So Judas is, is here. There's no getting around it. Um, it's, it's happening, and yet it's not fully realized either. Uh, so this is a good uh, lens with which to offer some clarity on how we understand the kingdom of God being at hand in John chapter 1, or Mark, chap- Mark chapter 1, by John's preaching. Pastor Cook, with just about a minute here, help us wrap things up, summarize this text, give us good news from Mark chapter 14 today. Uh, the the shepherd being struck down is uh, done by God. It is part of his salvific plan, and uh, Christ is um, not running away uh, from that. He's making his disciples aware of it. Uh, it's not a pleasant experience, um, as we see in Christ's prayer, and yet he dutifully casts himself on the will of his Father for the sake of the disciples, who have done absolutely nothing in this text to commend themselves in any way as being uh, role models or saints. Uh, Christ dies for sinners. That's not an excuse to sin, but it is a good news if you're a sinner. Um, no matter, you know, he, Christ doesn't wait for you to present the best version of yourself before he dies for you. Uh, he dies for you. That's a, that's a great uh, gospel um message here, or Christ is caring about his work, even in just the most egregious failures uh, of people he's taught for how long? A long time. And so any uh, pastor or teacher or parent who just is really aggravated that they've, how many times do I have to tell you, you know? Um, yep, it uh, it takes a bit and they still fail. Um, that doesn't mean you should have never taught to begin with, and it doesn't mean you should give up. Um, but uh, more importantly, it, it does show you that Christ himself, uh, he is relentless in uh, his love uh, and care for you, and he has done what it takes. So trust in him. That is, that's the way out of the mess. Pastor Tim Cook is the pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota, helping us this morning with Mark 14, verses 26 through 42. Pastor Cook, thanks for being our guest today. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Mark 14 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.